Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about different ways to make tinctures and how to dose them. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. Before we get into the different ways to make tinctures, I quickly want to let you know that the spring edition of the Botanical Anthology digital magazine is now available for download. Uh, You can find it at theplantwondercollective.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. And from now until Wednesday, which is March 29th, It's on sale, and you also get a free nettle bonus booklet. So the Botanical Anthology is this beautiful publication that includes over 40 different participants that write articles all about plants and the celebration of the seasons, and in this case, the celebration of spring. So there's different you know, sections of the publication. There's uh, in the kitchen, so recipes and cooking with plants. There's um, crafting with plants. There's the apothecary section, which is all about medicinal herbs and herbal preparations. There's seasonal celebrations and how we can celebrate the seasons with plants. So there's, it's just packed full of great information, great inspiration, and really nice recipes and beautiful, beautiful photography. So check it out if you can uh, at theplantwondercollective.com. This uh, edition, the spring edition, I wrote an article called All About Violets, where I talk about both violet flowers and leaves and how they can be helpful medicinally and how we can work with them. 
And then I also wrote an article that was basically a recipe for violet syrup and violet soda. So check check it out. It's I am so honored to be a part of the publication. It's a great group of folks that are coming together and really providing really good quality information and inspiration, definitely for the home herbalist or any plant-loving folk out there. Um, so check it out. But in the meantime, let's dig in to how to make herbal tinctures. As far as I know, there are four main ways that herbalists make tinctures. And I am going to go through the four ways. Um, I'm going to say that there's the last way that I'm going to talk about the folkloric method is my preferred method and what I have the most experience with. The other, the first two methods I pretty much have no experience with, so I'm just going to kind of talk about what I know of them, which is very little, and my general perception of them. And then we'll talk about the scientific method and where that stems from. So there's the spagyric method, the percolation method, the scientific method, which is also known as the weight-to-volume method, and the folkloric method. Um, before I really dig into that, I want to introduce you to two books that if you don't already have, I would highly recommend checking them out. And the first one is if you're into any type of making your own herbal remedies or making herbal remedies to sell, I would say you definitely need the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a home manual by James Green. And this book was, um, initially came out in 2000. And it is a beautiful book. It's super detailed. It goes into a huge array of different herbal preparations. And it's definitely, I think, like a Bible for the herbal home remedy making person. <laughs> and then the other book, if you're interested in making tinctures, or maybe any plant medicine, is a book called Making Plant Medicine by Richard Ketch. And he is the founder of what's now called Strictly Medicinal Herb Seed Company. It used to be Horizon Herbs. And so I think you, I know you can get the book through there if it's still in print, which I assume it is. And um, he really goes, he goes into great detail into the weight to volume way of making tinctures. So that's really nice, especially if you really want to get into like the mathematical side of things. Um, and he has some nice stories in the book as well. So those are kind of two of my go-tos books if you really want to kind of dive deeper. So the first uh, tincture way of making tinctures that I want to talk about is the spagyric way, which I will honestly say I don't have any experience with. I have very little um, even knowledge or understanding of it. But from my understanding, and then you can dive much deeper if this intrigues you at all, is it definitely really stems back to alchemy, which we talked about in the last episode a bit, where they really are trying, where they really are kind of 
extracting and separating out the herb in a couple different ways and then bringing it all together to try to get a full spectrum tincture remedy. So spagyric spagyric tincture definition that I found basically involves at least three steps, that of separation, purification, and cohibition or recombination. So the separation basically involves an extraction in alcohol, so making just a normal tincture um, where you're extracting various constituents into the alcohol for approximately 40 days. And then the purification aspect involves a process of taking the mark, which is the leftover plant material, drying it out, and then grinding it and burning it until it turns into a white ash. So essentially, you're breaking it down to the point of it just being the minerals that are left over, because that ash is essentially um, the purified, quote-unquote, purified herb where all you have left are the minerals, which cannot be destroyed by heat. And they aren't going to necessarily extract well into the alcohol. And then you take the mineral, that ash, those minerals, and you, the cohobation process or the recombination process is when you take those, that ash, and then mix it back into the liquid extract again for about 40 days. And at this point, you're using um, heat and agitation to help to improve the solubility of those minerals into that tincture. So a lot of shaking or agitation or spiraling of the tincture bottle and probably maybe a little bit of heat. You always be careful when you're heating alcohol because it is flammable and the vapors are flammable. <clears throat> so that's all I know of it. I know when I think of spagyrics, I think of and from the pictures I've seen, you kind of have this laboratory set up, um, you know, so that you're able to burn, dry and burn the plants. It's pretty involved. And it's, you know, you're kind of taking the plants all apart and putting them back together again, which when we talked about in last um, episode, where we part one of tincture making. I was kind of talking about how alchemy or even the beginning of really the way of understanding things scientifically and looking at things scientifically is we we want to harness life and the energy of life and the essence of life. Um, we want to access that, but in so doing, we take everything apart and therefore, in my opinion, we lose the life and the essence and then you know, put it back together again. And it's not the same. Um, so that's spagyrics. That's all I really know of it, but it's out there and maybe you know more or you can learn more if it intrigues you. A school of evolutionary herbalism, Sage Apopham, he seems to really be out there promoting spagyrics. So if he would be a great resource for that. Then there's the percolation method, which is another method of tincture making, which I don't have any experience with. I have not made a perk uh, tincture before. But basically, the percolation method, from my understanding, is you have dried, powdered herb, and you have it set up in a funnel system. So you create a funnel um, with a 
maybe like a filter and you put the herbs in, it looks like an upside down um, bottle, you know, with like the big opening, the big bottom of the bottle is open and at the top. And then the normal, what would be the top of the bottle is down and pointed into another containing vessel. And then that's lined with some sort of filter, like you could picture a coffee filter maybe. And then um, a bunch of powdered dried herb is placed into that. It's usually um, what would be considered a very medicinal herb, more toward the maybe more poisonous herb, an herb that has a lot of alkaloids in it potentially. You know, you're looking for a very strong, potent medicine, I would say, with the percolation method, which, as I talked about in the last episode, potent, you know, it seems like it's this big desire and need, like we want this really potent remedy. Um, But I really feel that this drive for potency, this idealized potent medicine, is what brought us to pharmaceutical drugs because those are the most potent medicines that we have. And so I think if we can personally, if we can take a step back from looking for potency and look for more well-rounded and nourishing remedies, that's where I like to to live in uh, my realm of medicine. But so the percolation method, which is one reason why I've never done it, is you're making really potent um, herbal tincture. So you have your powdered herbs in your funnel and you basically take a very high proof alcohol um, or straight ethanol and you pour it into, I don't know if you pour it slowly or if you pour it all at once, into that funnel with the dried herbs and then it slowly percolates through that dried powder herbs and drips out and into your container. And then you also, I think, somehow harness that alcohol from the dried herbs, you know, squeeze it out probably with a tincture press or something so you can get as much out of it as possible. And what happens there, yes, it it takes a lot shorter of amount of time than uh, soaking a tincture for a month or longer would be. So this is like, you know, hours closer to multiple hours or maybe a day or two that it takes to percolate depending on how much of a tincture you're making. And what happens is, especially when you're using a high proof alcohol, what is going to be extracted from those, from that herb material, that powdered dried herb material, um, the fastest is going to be the alkaloids, especially when you're using a high concentration of alcohol. And so if you are looking to concentrate the alkaloids, which are going to be the more poisonous, but also potentially stronger medicinal, quote unquote, um, parts of a plant, then this is how the best way to do that, because you're also going to be leaving behind um, a lot of the constituents of the plant that take a longer time to extract. And so you're going to be getting um, not a full spectrum tincture, right? Versus if you are letting it sit for a long period of time, then you're really allowing a lot of time for all of the constituents that are soluble in alcohol or alcohol and water, depending on the percentage of your menstruum and menstruum being the liquid, the 
um, that the solvent that you're using will extract given the amount of time. But for the percolation method, you're really just going for high potency medicine. And it is on the spectrum of tincture making, I would say that it is the most concentrated, the most drug-like, and the most poisonous, which could also mean that it might be the most, quote-unquote, medicinal, depending on how you define medicinal, but it also might be the most dangerous and the most likely to have um, side effects or negative reactions. And probably likely uh, the more important one to really start in very small doses. Because again, you're taking, you know, what would be if you're using fresh plant material, right? And then you were to dry it. So that shrinks it by three quarters, maybe. And then you were to grind it down to a powder. And then that shrinks it even more. So you're able to put in that funnel, like, I don't know how much, but multiple times more plant material than you would if it was fresh, right? So you're concentrating the plant material and then you're pouring alcohol through that and you're concentrating the poisons from that plant material into your medicine. So that's basically the percolation method. James Green in his book goes into some really nice detail. If you want to try that out, so then a step down from that where you're still being very um, methodical and scientific, but you're getting more of a full spectrum tincture, most likely would be with the, what's known as the scientific method or the weight to volume method. And this method is one that I have done before a little bit here and there when I was in herb school. And it's really based on ratios. So, you know, you have a certain weight to volume ratio that you are always using, depending on if you have fresh plants, dried plants, or poisonous plants. And it's you always start with ethanol, and then you can put in the percentage of water into that ethanol that you want so that you can adjust both your percentage of alcohol to water ratio and you can also adjust your plant to solvent ratio depending on what you're working with. But it does provide some consistency and some measurements. So everything, well, as as consistent as plants could be, which is really not that consistent. You know, you, you can strive as much as you possibly can for a more consistent tincture. And I say that because, yes, every time you make a tincture, you'll have the same weight of an herb, of a specific herb, to the same volume of solvent. So in that way, you know, it's measured out and logged and consistent. However, Herbs are with even within, say, one herb, like, say, garden sage, that plant is going to be very different depending on when it's harvested, the type of soil it's in, uh, whether it's stressed or not, um, the time of year that it's harvested, the part of the plant that's harvested. You know, there's so much variables within within a plant that the closer that we get to working with the whole plant, 
the more we just have to let go of this idea of consistency and just trust in the variation of life. But the scientific method gives us at least a, oh, an illusion (laughs) of consistency, perhaps. And basically, this method really stems out of alchemy and actually making, you know, medicine at the turn of the 20th century. So in James Green's book, he kind of talks about how the the ratios, which I'll also get into the details of, are determined or were determined to be used. And so that, that all comes from, according to him, in September of 1902 in Brussels, Belgium, a Conference Internationale pour la Unification de la Formule des Médicaments Héroïques was held. So that it sounds like it's French for the International Conference for the Unification of the Formulas of heroic medicines and the hero so this so this weight to volume measurement system is really based in the heroic tradition of healing and the gathering brought together delegates from nearly every quote-unquote civilized country the purpose of this body was to formulate standards for potent remedies, which would be adopted by the various pharmacopoeias of the world and therefore secure the principal object of an international pharmacopoeia. So this is how they were really able to have consistency and unification around the quote-unquote civilized world in, at, in the early 1900s. The protocol agreed upon at this conference was adopted and made official in the U.S. Pharmacopoeia, the 8th, in 1906 and has remained as a standard, conforming in principle to the standards recommended by the International Protocol adopted at Brussels in 1902. These are the ratios of herbs to menstrua. So menstrua is plural for menstruum, which is your solvent. Herbs are obviously what's going into the bottle, and then they become the mark, M-A-R-C, which is the material that is being extracted. So these are your ratios in the scientific method that you're working with. And the ratios are um, where your weight is in grams and your volume is in cc's or milliliters, which is the same. So tinctures of dried, non-toxic botanicals are a one to five weight to volume. So if you have 20 grams of herb that you would be weighing out on a scale, you would put that in a jar with 100 milliliters, which is five times 20, right? 100 milliliters or cc of your solvent or your menstruum. If you so that's the one to five ratio for dried non-toxic botanicals. If you are using dried toxic or quote unquote intense botanicals, then you would do a one to ten volume uh, weight to volume tincture. So that's um, half half the concentration. So you would have ten grams of herbs to a hundred milliliters of your solvent, right? 
So you take 10 grams of herbs, you times it by 10, you get 100 milliliters. That's the one to 10. That's the more dangerous herbs that you work with. And then for tinctures of fresh, undried plants, so you're using fresh plant material that's just harvested, then you do a weight-to-volume tincture of a 1 to 2 And so that's, you'd have weigh out 50 grams of the plant material and that put that in a jar with 100 milliliters of the solvent because you take the 50 grams and you multiply it by two, which is your one to two ratio and you get your 100 milliliters of solvent. So those are the standard weight to volume measurements that people use in the scientific method. Now, and then especially in uh, Richo Ketch's book, he really gets into now how do you determine what your solvent is? So if you're using like a fresh plant, then you're probably in in the mind of making a stronger, more potent tincture, you're going to use um, a higher proof of alcohol. Um, And if you're using a dried plant material, you'll use an alcohol that has been more diluted with water so that you can extract, you can kind of rehydrate that plant to extract some of the water-soluble properties. So I I touched on it last um, episode, and this episode, I just want to touch on it here again when we're talking about water-to-alcohol ratio. Um, The idea is that we want to extract constituents from the herb, right? And so there's different solubilities of the different constituents into either alcohol, water, or a combination of alcohol and water. And there's different extraction times for all of those constituents. So essentially, like, the longer you allow your tincture to sit, the and macerate is the word, right, is when it's sitting, steeping, working, uh, the longer you allow your tincture to macerate, the more full spectrum it will become in constituents uh, to a point until it's fully saturated or Um, And then the more variety of alcohol to water, the more the right ratio of alcohol to water, you're going to extract water soluble, alcohol soluble, and then you'll also extract ones that need both to, to extract in the best way. And you can get really scientific on that. And it can get really mathematical. And if you have a a tincture company, or if you're working with like really um, poisonous plants, then then that might be where you want to go. So you can have, you know, a tincture that is closer on the spectrum to a pharmaceutical drug, uh, further away than a food, for sure, but it's not as close as a perk method to a pharmaceutical drug. So this is kind of the spectrum of tincture making. So the pros of the scientific method is you have consistency, or at least an illusion thereof. Uh, You can work with it with more poisonous plants and get a more specific remedy with those. And then if you're selling products, you can make a more um, consistent product. Again, 
I think that there is an illusion behind consistency there to some degree because we are working with plants and nature. <laughs> but um, so when you're selling a product from the scientific method, then you can write on the back your standard ratio. You can do the one to five weight to volume or whatever it is that you did or one to two. And then you'd write the percentage of your alcohol to water as well on there. And so I was like, oh, well, for this for this podcast, I'll go check on some tincture bottles that I have that some people have given me. You know, people are like, oh, you're an herbalist. Let me give you my old tincture bottles that are empty. Maybe you can reuse them. And some of them still had the tags on them. Like one was from a really um, generic brand, the Now N-O-W brand, which is huge and generic, and they have huge factory facilities. And I looked on the back of all of the tincture bottles that I had from them, and they didn't have any of that weight to volume listed on there. Um, they did have, you know, I think they were able to write, I can't remember now, but maybe like the weight of the herb that was in there originally that would be considered to be within that tincture bottle. So there was some measurement on there, but there was no ratio determined. And then I looked on some more smaller, you know, small scale farm uh, processing herbal company labels, and they also didn't have the weight to volume. So I say, oh, well, this is great if you're going to be selling tinctures and you can write it on there and that's what schools teach. But at the same time, like that's not really what is being sold anyway. So although maybe in their in their paperwork that they have to have, um, maybe that this is taken into consideration. I don't know. Uh, because lucky for me, I am not a product maker that's selling products. I really am all about being a home herbalist and helping other people to be home herbalists. And that's where we're going to talk about the folk method in a second. Uh, but I just want to talk about some cons. You know, we did the pros and so some cons for the scientific method. Um, it's not necessarily super easy for home herbalist to do. I mean, basically, yes, all you need is a scale and some beaker measurement, milliliter measurement bottles. Um, but it's just not as easy. So really, if you're going to be making your own remedies and it's not your life, um, then it might hinder you to have to take this extra step. So it's not as easy for the home herbalist. It gets a little bit more complicated. Um, sometimes the ratios don't physically work. Like when I was learning this, um, it was like, well, these are the standard ratios, but sometimes if you're going to have like a certain weight of herb to that volume of water, depending on how heavier light the herb is, if the herb is really light and so you have, um, you know, so much weight of that herb you, and then you have this, what's the recommended amount of, um, so the, the weight is the same, but the volume of the herb is really large because it's so full of air and light weight. And then you use your volume of alcohol to top that off and it doesn't cover the herb fully, or you really have to like, then you have to like figure out how you're going to like grind the herb down, or, you know, maybe you have to like add a little bit more tincture and then the ratio is different. So sometimes it doesn't quite mesh. Probably you just have to like grind the herb down. Okay, so now 
I want to talk about the folk method or the folkloric method of making a tincture, which is my preferred method, um, mostly because it's like really easy and it works really well. And it's funny because I, so this is basically the method that people know of like, put some herb in a jar, pour some vodka over it and let it soak, right? And so that has some stigma behind it of like, oh, that's not going to make the pro- a strong tincture or a potent tincture. That's just, you know, it's just not going to be good. It's, you know, I was actually looking at someone who was promoting their herb, herb course that they, were, that they were teaching on making plant medicine. And in it, they were like, oh, you know, I'm going to teach you how to make good, rem- good tinctures or something along that line. Like, not just, a, you know, pour, stick a bunch of herbs in a jar and pour vodka over it. I'm going to teach you how to make like a tincture that actually works or something like that. And I was like, okay, this is interesting because I know tinctures from the folkloric method work. They work really well. And it's interesting because again, like if someone wants to make, it's so easy that you don't really have to like sell it. You don't have to like go to school to learn this. Like I'm going to tell you how to do it. It's going to be so easy. You don't have to pay to learn how to do this. It's not something that can be gatekeeped. It's not something that it's like you have to go to school for. It's super basic and super easy. And I will also uh, give some tips as to how to make a good quality folkloric. I mean, there are ways that you can do it that um, are better than other ways. So I'm going to tell you my how I think the best way to make a folkloric tincture is. Um, but it really is. It's great for the home herbalist. It's super easy. Okay, so like I said, it's basically pouring vodka over er- or herbs and letting it soak. But you want to make sure that you get enough herbs in your jar, okay? So, and you also want to make sure that you're using 100 proof vodka, okay? 100 proof vodka, if you listen back to episode one, if you haven't already of this part one episode, um, I really get into why we will want to use 100 proof vodka, but that's my preferred use and it is readily available these days. Number two, getting the herb in the jar. So preferably we work with fresh plants if we can, Um, especially if we're working with like leaves and flowers that have a lot of aroma to them. Uh, It just is going to, and it really gives a more well-rounded tincture. Yes, there's a lot more water in the fresh plant material, but if you just even if you make a tincture with an herb, the same herb of a dried dried herb tincture and a fresh herb tincture, you will see the difference. You will taste the difference. You will feel the difference. It's there is like a sweetness, and I don't mean like a flavor sweetness, but there's that like the essence. Or as um, you know, my my mentor Susan Weed would say it. It contains the fairies in the tincture. It contains the the true essence and the spirit of the plant 
is in that tincture because it's harvested fresh. It's immediately tinctured. Um, you know, that it contains not only the plant constituents, but it also contains the essence, the spirit of the plant. And you can just feel that and know it when you take the tincture. To get enough herb in that jar, we need to chop the herb up. We need to, and some people use a blender. I personally am not a fan of the blender uh, method because it's, I don't know, it just feels harsh. It feels a little violent. It, it works fine if you just either use scissors and you clump the herb together in your hand and then just cut really small shavings off of that herb. So you want to cut it into small pieces as possible. Or you can dice it with a knife, like just chop it, chop it, chop it, chop it really finely with a knife. The smaller the pieces of herb, the more herb you can get in your jar. Right. If you don't cut up your herb, you're not going to fit nearly enough herb in that jar, especially if it's fresh, obviously. Um, and then you also are providing more surface area of the plant. So instead of it just being one leaf that has the top surface and the bottom surface, you take that leaf and you chop it, chop it, chop it, chop it. And now it has all these little bits and pieces that have multiple surfaces on each bit and piece. And that's going to allow for easier extraction, easier osmosis, easier pulling from what's inside the plant material into the solvent, into the alcohol and water. So that is really important. Fit as much herb as you can in the jar without like really stuffing it super full. I, I like to say lightly packed and almost up to the top. You want to leave a little bit like maybe a quarter inch at the most of headspace where the alcohol can cover the herb. Because as you know, the herb sits and absorbs some more of that moisture, um, it might kind of pop up out of the alcohol. And then it's not horrible, but it's not going to rot or anything because it still has the alcohol preserving it that's soaked in it. But it will oxidize and it will turn black. So that's the other thing is you want to make sure that your herb is completely covered with alcohol. And that might involve going back um, after a day or two and opening your jar and checking this, make sure it is still covered in alcohol and if not to top it off, right? So lightly packed, chopped as small as you can, and then covered with 100 proof vodka and then a tight lid put on it. If you don't like what your lid is made of, then you can put a barrier between it, like a piece of parchment paper um, or wax paper, unbleached, and then tighten it and then let it sit away from sunlight for at least four weeks. Sometimes people like to do a moon cycle. Um, six weeks, I feel like is kind of the standard that I learned. And then, but really like you can just let it sit indefinitely or until you're ready to work with it or until you're ready to strain it. It's not like, oh my God, if I don't strain it at six weeks, it's not good anymore. You know, it is preserved. The alcohol is preserving it. So that's basically it. It's that easy and it really doesn't take much time. You can even take your jar and your scissors and a basket out into the field with you 
harvest your fresh herb, and then find a shady spot to work with it. And I like to work with the basket in my lap and the jar in the basket. And then I just like to, you know, take the clump the herb up in my hand and chop it up with scissors into tiny bits and put it in the jar. And then the basket will catch any that kind of falls to the wayside. And then you have your vodka out in the field too, and you pour it in and you cover it up. If you want, you can also have a, um, depending on how big your jar is, you can have a chopstick with you as a stirring stick or as a way to kind of get out air bubbles that might be in the jar so that you can, um, you know, make sure that you have a full jar of alcohol in there too. And it's pretty amazing. Like you think that you filled your jar so full of the plant material, like all the way up to the top, like how can there be any room for the vodka, right? But you will be able to because there's so much airspace anyway, um, even though it's lightly packed in there, you'll still be able to fill your jar with almost the same volume of alcohol that is that is the jar. So if you're using a pint jar to make a tincture, you're going to use just about a pint of alcohol, even though the, there's like a pint of herbs in that in that jar as well. So that's something to consider. Make sure you bring enough alcohol out with you. And then for dried herbs in the folklore method, we use a lot less. We don't fill the jar all the way up to the top. We are going to fill the jar no more than halfway. Usually it's closer to a third full. And then you fill your jar all the way to the top with 100 proof vodka. And as time goes, it will, that herb material is going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to rehydrate and expand back to its normal size. And so if you were to fill the jar uh, with dried herb and then it wants to expand and expand and expand, it can crack your jar uh, with the force of its expansion. So that's why we use a lot less. And plus, it's about the same amount of plant material, right? Because it's just the water weight that's been, that kind of shrinks the dried plant. So that's that much smaller. And usually dried plant tinctures can or might need to macerate, which is steep, um, longer than fresh plant materials to really get full extraction. Now, Working with dried seeds, dried roots, dried berries um, is going to be better with tinctures than working with like the really delicate dried leaves and flowers because they really maintain their integrity when they're dried, usually. The seeds, the berries, the roots, they're really tough. And they can, when they dry, they don't kind of just dissipate and crinkle up to nothing. So those are fine to work with. Although I will say, this would be a great experiment too. If you have fresh elderberries and dried elderberries, um, and you make a tincture with both of those separately, the 
taste and the feel and the difference between the two is amazing. It is, it's, they're like two different beasts, but they're, they're both good. It depends on what you have available to you. But that is like one that I've really noticed like, wow, this is such a different creature. And it's like that with most, most fresh to dried. And so if we can do fresh, that's ideal. But if we can only get dried, um, then we can do that too. It's not a big deal. So pros and cons. Uh, pros of the folkloric method, I would say that it's easy. Um, there's no gatekeeping. You, anyone can do it. Um, and it's very simple. And it makes a really high quality plant remedy. The cons might be that you don't have as much consistency from batch to batch, that it's not for the scientific minded person, perhaps, that really wants to know like exact amounts. If you maybe you want to like do a scientific experiment on an herb, then this is going to be harder to do that with. So how long can they macerate? For, and then I just wrote some questions here that I wanted to make sure I covered. So how long can they macerate for? Basically as long as you want them to. I literally have tinctures that I haven't strain, strained uh, that are years old. Uh, how long do they last? Tinctures in general last a very long time, potentially like 100 years. I mean, alcohol doesn't go bad. It might change in time, and some constituents are less stable than others, right? So the tincture will change in time, but it's not going to go bad. It's still usable as long as it tastes good. However, I will say that tinctures that are in rubber dropper bottles, I personally think they go bad really fast. One reason is because that alcohol is like evaporating into that rubber dropper cap and interacting with it. And so I personally find um, that tinctures that are stored in bottles with rubber droppers taste like rubber to me. And not only that, but in time, the, the rubber dropper is porous, slightly porous, and so the vodka can act, or the alcohol can actually evaporate out through that rubber. So if you were to store your tincture for a long time in something that is not 100% sealed, that has a porous top to it, it will evaporate out and in time you just won't have any tincture left. And I even did that once. I had a, I was using like a spice jar. Um, it was glass, but it did have a plastic lid. It wasn't a tight seal, and I didn't realize that. And, you know, after a while, my tincture level was a lot lower. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, but I realized in time it was just evaporating out. So that is one, one thing to consider. I wanted to make sure that we went through the vocabulary, and I've talked a, a, a bunch about it. So the menstruum and the solvent, that's your liquid the mark, that's your plant material and the leftover plant material after you strain out the tincture. And then macerate is um, what the action is that's happening while you let your bottle sit. It's mass, your jar sit with the herbs and the vodka together. It's macerating. And menstruum, the word menstruum is based on 
the same base word that menses or menstrual cycle is based on, which is basically like a set amount of time that your remedy is sitting for is kind of what that comes from, a moon cycle potentially, the menstruum. But the menstruum is the, the liquid. Okay, how do we use tinctures? Now that we've made our tincture, we've had all these different ways that we can experiment and try to make different tinctures with and see how do we use them? Well, we can use them internally and we can use them topically. We can use them um, in our mouth orally, like if we have a canker sore, um, if our gums are bleeding, we could use a really astringent tincture. Yarrow is great. Um, Antimicrobial. Uh, we can use tinctures to help relieve pain topically, stop bleeding, like first aid, yarrow is my go-to tincture. Um, we can use it as a skin toner, especially if we're using a vodka water, you know, hunter proof vodka combination. And then you can even dilute that in water if you want, if you have acne, um, if you want to kind of fight an infection of acne and then like tone the skin. Yarrow is also really good for that. And then we can use them internally. We can, I know when I first learned how to work with tinctures, it was you have your rubber dropper bottle, you lift up your, you open your mouth, you lift up your tongue, you squeeze um, some drops or a dropper full under your tongue where you have all these blood vessels and it goes right into your bloodstream and it burns like crazy and you're like oh it's horrible what did I do and that hurts and I think that in time maybe we've gotten a little bit away from that method and now it's more like well maybe put some tincture in a little bit of water in a shot glass or something and then drink it or you could put tinctures in your water bottle if you're using tinctures you know throughout the day for some reason, um, then, and you carry a water bottle or a infusion, a bottle of nourishing herbal infusion with you throughout the day, then you can just put your day's dose of tincture in that bottle that you take with you throughout the day and sip on it. It's really kind of thought that maybe because alcohol can cause, especially really strong alcohol, can cause oral cancer or throat cancer, it's not if you're taking a large amount of tinctures for some reason, then you do want to dilute them in something so they don't doesn't have extreme direct contact with your delicate mouth tissues. So the way that I like to take tinctures is I basically, I don't even use dropper bottles because I don't like the rubber, um, but I will just pour a little bit in the bottom of a shot glass and then I'll fill the shot glass with water and I'll just drink it. That's what I like to do. So dosing. So that kind of brings us to dosing. How do we dose tinctures? Oh, man, you could talk for a very long time about that. We don't have time for that right now. But basically, I want to instill the idea that dosing is very, unless you're working, again, with like the more drug-like remedies like a percolation of a poisonous tincture or you're working with poisonous herbs which are definitely like drop dose only herbs like poke root might be an example of that um or lobelia tincture like tinctures that 
do have negative side effects if you take too much of them, then you want to definitely just take like one drop and see how your body works with that. But basically, dosing is very subjective. It's very personal. um, And you're going to get the best results if you can tune into your body, what you need, and how your body reacts to an herb. And start small and work your way up and find what works with you. It takes being um, intentional. It takes being in tune. And it takes, you know, kind of blocking out this idea of letting someone be an authoritative figure and tell you how you need to heal and how you need to take your medicine, which is how we're trained in today's culture. That is our standard conventional form of medicine. We go to an authoritarian figure, they tell us what we take, how much we take of it. We do that. We're good. We're good little kids. And hopefully we get better. But herbalism doesn't work like that, okay? You really have to be in tune with how you interact with your bodies. And this is why I think it's really important that we, especially when we first start working with herbs, that we work with them as simples. And when I say that, I mean it's one herb in a remedy. You don't have to work with one herb all day or all month. Um, You can do multiple herbs even within an hour or even within 20 minutes if you really want to. But when you are tasting that medicine, when you are connecting, when you are resonating uh, with that medicine that you ideally have made yourself and that you are taking or that you know came from a really reliable source, then you can tune in with it and see what works for you. And if you're working with safe herbs, then and um, herbs that aren't really going to have any negative side effects, then you can really sky's the limit. Like you start low and you work your way up and see what works for you. So that's a quick, a quick thought on that. Maybe I'll have to do a, an episode in more detail about dosing because it, you can get really deep into it. But start small, work with one herb at a time, use your intuition, trust your body, and go with it. Now, you'll see on most tincture bottles, um, unless, again, they're the, they're the super low-dose herbs, I think it usually says 30 to 60 drops three to six times a day or something like that. There is this like standard dose for tinctures, um, especially ones on the marketplace. So 30 drops is about a dropper full, as much as you can get into a dropper is kind of, or like maybe that's, yeah. So that is a standard dose. And I think also with tinctures, especially in acute situations, it's not like you're going to take it once and then you don't need to take it again. Or you're going to take it once at one point in one day, and then you're not going to take it again for the next day. Usually these are herbs, and this is why I suggest putting it in your water bottle and sipping on it throughout the day. These are herbs that, especially in acute situations, you're going to need to take every, you know, a small amount on a regular basis throughout the day, a small amount every hour. Um, And find your find your dose to where you start getting relief of whatever symptoms you're looking to get relief from. If you're working with tinctures on more of a chronic level, um, if you're really trying to like reverse a long-term chronic condition, 
then it might be, you know, three doses a day or like one dose at night before bed um, if you're looking for it to take a longer time to take effect. So that would be the difference of, say, echinacea, where I have an infection coming on, I need to take my echinacea tincture, I'm going to take a dropper full or a teaspoonful every hour. And actually, echinacea kind of comes with this standard dose of um, one drop of tincture for every two pounds of body weight. So if you weigh 150 pounds, that's 75 drops, right? Because we take half the amount of what we weigh. So that's 75 drops. And then, so we know a dropper full is about 30 drops. So that's like two and a half dropper fulls if you were to weigh 150 pounds. And you would take that at one time. So you'd put it, do squirt, 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 put it in a shot glass with some water and take it. And then an hour or two later, do it again and then do it again. And so you can see that you're going to go through, in this case, uh, echinacea tincture. If you buy an ounce of echinacea tincture, you're going to go through it in a day. And that's what? these days, I don't know, 15, 18, $20. It gets really expensive. And this is one way why it's really great to know how to easily make um, a tincture. And if you want to know how to make an echinacea tincture, find my podcast episode on echinacea, because I actually make an echinacea tincture with dried root in the podcast episode. I also talk about, I think, making tinctures in the yarrow episode and in a lot of my individual uh, plant episodes. I think I might talk about how to make a tincture with that specific plant and how to work with it. So it is very individual to the person and the plant and how you're going to work with it. If, say, so that's echinacea in an acute situation. Let's say you are working to lower your blood pressure and you're working with hawthorn berry and maybe some other herbs then it's a chronic condition. Hawthorne berry takes a long time to work. It's a tonic herb. You might take a dropper full in the morning and a dropper full in the evening and work with it for three months before you give up and say, this herb isn't working for me. For children, that's a whole nother beast. And I don't think I really even want to get into that right now, but you can base it on weight. So how much you would take at your weight, and then you could take a very small amount for the weight of your child. And then we want to take into consideration if they're, you know, the amount of alcohol that's in it. Is tincture really the best thing? Is it that serious? Maybe we could do tea instead. But again, the amount of alcohol in one dropper full, especially if we're using 100 proof and not a higher concentration of alcohol, is very, very small. And you know, our bodies are able to handle that. And then I think I will do a part three episode where I get a little bit more into the types of herbs that we tincture, my favorite herbs to tincture, what herbs we wouldn't tincture. So I'll get a little bit more into that and maybe I'll get a little bit more specific about how to figure out some dosing. But we're, you know, time is up. So I wanted to quickly leave you with another little story about my path, my herbal path, which I've been doing in my recent podcast episodes. And I want to talk a little bit about um, 
as a teenager, my relationship to herbs. And one, one thing, one thing that really cued me into herbs was Celestial Seasonings Sleepy Time Tea. My mom had bought the box. It's so cute, right? It's got like the bear sitting on his, on his cozy chair with his slippers and nightcap. And I, and this is, okay, so I'm 46. So we're talking like 30 years ago. And I just remember thinking like, oh, sleepy time tea. I'll drink this and maybe I'll get sleepy. And I did. And I was like, wow, herbs work. (laughs) This is kind of cool. I can see a cause and effect. I can see a relationship. That was like my first herbal remedy that I gave myself, I guess. And I also was very into, um, well, my parents were really into gardening. And so they gave me like a little area of the yard where I could have my own garden. And I would go to plant nurseries with my mom. And I was just really always drawn to herbs that smelled good, to plants that smelled good, which inevitably were herbs. Um, And so my gardens would always just become herb gardens automatically because I wanted plants that smell good. I didn't care about the showy flowers. I I just wanted plants that smelled good. And those were the ones that I resonated with and that I was most interested in. And so one day, you know, my mom, I grew up in, at this point, I was living in South Burlington, Vermont. And I uh, would go on these little drives with my mom sometimes, like on weekends, we would just kind of go and explore wherever the country, I don't even know where we went, but we would just kind of take out the atlas and go explore back roads of Vermont in different places. Usually north, we'd usually go north versus south. And I all, I have this very, very clear memory. I have no idea where in Vermont we were, but it was probably within an hour of South Burlington. It felt like we had been driving on dirt roads, like through the woods, and we came across this little plant nursery. And all I remember is like this hoop house and this beautiful woman with like, in my mind, she had like long gray silver hair and she looked like someone I really resonated with. And and, uh, you know, she, she was like, oh, well, you know, what kind of plants are you interested in looking for? And I was like, oh, I think I probably was like, I like plants that smell good, you know. And she was like, oh, well, I have the plant for you. And she brought out this plant and she said, rub these leaves and smell them. And I did. And it was this beautiful, like sweet, spicy scent that I have never really smelled before. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And she said, well, this herb is called holy basil and it's actually, um, sacred in India and is planted outside of Indian temples because its smell is so good and it is used as offerings to um, to the gods. And I was like, sold. <laughs> I'm hooked. This is amazing. I love this plant. And so I remember bringing that plant home and putting it in my garden and just... Um, I think what she did in that moment um, 
was that she really cued me into this whole other world of these scented plants that not only do they smell good, but they are sacred and used in ritual. And um, you know, in far off places in the world. Here I am, I don't know, I was probably like 15, 16 years old. And I just, it was a very, very, um, another very poignant moment in my journey, which I didn't even know at that time in my journey toward becoming an herbalist. So whoever you are out there, uh, who introduced me to Tulsi, thank you so much. I don't, It's amazing, you know, these impacts we have on people that she had on me, and she probably had no idea now where I am. So that's pretty cool. And thank you to Tulsi as well. (sighs) So on that note, um, I just want to thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your interest in making tinctures. I will say that last week's episode on Tincture Making 101 Part 1 had the most listens I've had in a week to, to one episode, so um, by like at least 100 people. So I had like over 500 people listen to that episode last week, which is huge for me, and I'm so grateful. Um, thank you. For And it just shows that there is a real interest out there in um, making your own medicine. And I think that the easier and the simpler we make it, the better off we are and the more we can actually get from it. Um, Not only like physically get from it, but like emotionally and spiritually get from it as well. And the more likely we are to do it. And the easier it will be for us to relate to it. And when I say simpler, I mean both in method and in working with one herb at a time. So anytime we make a tincture, we make it with one herb. We don't put five herbs into our jar and make a tincture with that. In my personal opinion, I know there are other opinions out there. Some people say, oh, but then they all like meld and marry together and the complexity is born. But in my mind, the complexity is already there within each herb. Each herb is already so complex unto itself. And when we work with 100 proof vodka and we work with fresh plants and we work in the folkloric method, we can actually get some of the most complexity from our plants into our tinctures. And it might mean that they're not as consistent and they're not as standardized but they are effective thank you so much i would love it if you would rate and review my show if you're listening on apple podcasts Um, i read every um, review on there and i really appreciate them thank you so much and when i'm feeling like oh what am i doing why am i doing this podcast i just read those and it gives me motivation to keep going. So thank you to all who have taken the time to do that. And if you like and appreciate the show, I would love to hear from you as well. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, my website, all with the tag Solidago Herb School. Thanks so much for listening. 
I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and have fun with herbs. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube